20, while the kids are dismissed to the back to get taught on their own level, we're grateful that they are able to do that. Thankful for the evens teaching them. It's good to have you today in church. Amen. It's a blessing to be here together. And when you are not here, you are missed. Believe it or not, you are missed, and we're grateful to have you today. John chapter 20, we've been examining the fruits of the Spirit as shown in Jesus' life. Uh, we've spent several months on this now, and, and uh, today we actually finish up the ninth fruit of the Spirit that we look in Jesus' life to see how he displayed it. And uh, so we've looked at love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, all those and uh, we understand that the Bible is our guide in both precept and principle. And I'd like to add one more to that. It's also our pattern. And so not only does it give us direct commands on how to live and how to, uh, how to be in our spirits and how to treat other people, but it also sets forth principles that we can draw from, and then it sets up patterns that we can follow. Jesus Christ is our perfect pattern. Everything that is demanded of us and expected of us is perfected in Him. And so while we look at these different fruits of the Spirit and how they can be displayed in our life, what better thing than to look how, how they were displayed in Jesus' life? And so today we look at the faith of Jesus. One way we're going to do is look through the paradigm of our faith, and then I'm also, uh, well, we'll see the, we'll explain the second one in a moment as we look at the faith of Jesus. Look at John chapter 20, starting at verse number 24. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, the word Didymus means twin, so Thomas was a twin, uh, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said unto him, We have seen the Lord. But he said unto them, Except I see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days again his disciples were within, and Thomas with them, and then came Jesus the doors being shut, and stood in the midst, and said, Peace be unto you. Then said he to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger, and behold my hands, and reach hither thy hand, and thrust it into my side, and be not faithless, but believing. Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said unto him, Thomas, Because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen, yet have believed. The faith of Jesus. Father, I pray you'd help us today, bless the reading of your word, and then help it to speak to us in a special way. We'll give you the glory for it in Jesus' name. Amen. As I look through the fruit of the Spirit, got to be honest, I struggled with this one, talking about faith as it pertains to Jesus. In order to examine whether or not Jesus had faith, we first look at what faith is. Faith, the original word in Greek for faith is pistis. It means to a conviction of the truth of anything, a belief of respecting a man's relationship to God. And so, but really, the best, the definition I always use personally for faith is just simply believing God. Just believing God. That's faith. God says it, I believe it. And uh, so that's the, that's the simplest maybe definition of faith. But faith is often defined as believing something without evidence. Now, that's not necessarily the biblical kind of faith because in our text we have an account here of what we call doubting Thomas. I'm not really fond of that term. We'll see why as we go through. Uh, but he did not believe here that Jesus had risen from the dead. 
Uh, he wanted evidence. He said in verse 25, except I see the nails in his hand, scars in his hands and the scar in his side, I will not believe, he said. Now, eight days later, Jesus appeared to him. And he says in verse 27, reach forth thy finger, behold my hands, reach forth thy hands and, be, and thrust it into my side. Jesus here taught basically that it's okay to have faith that is based on evidence. It does not mean that such a faith is always blind or without basis. Yet when we come to the book of Hebrews, we see in Hebrews 11.1, 1, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So true biblical faith is not emotional, wishful thinking. It is an inner conviction based on the word of God. Romans chapter 10, verse 17, so then faith cometh by hearing and hearing uh, by the word of God. Now, Hebrews 11.1, 1, the word substance means assurance, and the word evidence means proof. So the Holy Spirit gives us faith through the Word of God, and the presence of that faith in our hearts, then, is all the evidence we need. Uh, the, the faith enables the believing soul to treat the future as present and the invisible as seen. If you look at Hebrews 11, you see, by faith, Noah saw the judgment. By faith, Abraham saw a city yet to be built. Uh, by faith, Joseph saw the exodus from Egypt. Faith accomplishes things because there is power in the word of God. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3 talks about the creation and how the very word of God brought about the creation. God spoke and it was done. Well, God still speaks to us, doesn't he? And we can have that faith in him. When we believe what he says, the power of his word accomplishes great things in our life. Yet the fact remains there are things that we believe that we do not see. That may be a struggle. Uh, and this is kind of the struggle I had with this message. Because with Jesus, it's a little different, isn't it? He is God in the flesh. The Bible says in John 21, 17, he knoweth all things. And how is it then that he could have faith? Who or what would his faith be in? Now, I can use this chair as an example. I've sat in this chair probably hundreds of times. Uh, every Sunday morning before church is about to begin, I come up and I sit in this chair and I trust that it will not collapse, that it will hold me. Now, be honest, if it did collapse, would you laugh or would you see? I wanted to see who my friends are and I just found out. So I believe that it uh, will hold me. But the truth of the matter is, I cannot be 100% absolutely certain that it'll hold me until I demonstrate that by faith and I sit down on it. That's a simple illustration here. But my faith that the chair will hold me up is based on knowledge gained from past experience. It always has held me up. And it held up Brother Dwight, and he's so much heavier than I am. So, uh, But I do know for absolute certain uh, that it'll support me now because I have faith based on past experience. So faith in this sense is a knowledgeable trust in something based on past experience. As a man, Jesus had experience with God the Father since he was under the law of God. Galatians 4.4, 4, but when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son made of a woman, made under the law. In Matthew 4.10, Jesus said that he was to worship the Father and that he would have absolute trust in the Father. Now, how that manifested itself exactly is a bit of a mystery to me because, well, we can't get into the mind of Christ to examine it, but there is probably a sense in which 
He was trusting the Father with his life. If then Jesus had all knowledge and knew everything, could he even have faith? Do you see the point I'm getting at? If he knew it all, how could he have faith? This brings up a theological puzzle that people have discussed for many eons and still continue to. Was Jesus accessing all his divine omniscience as he walked this earth? In Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 and 8, it tells us that Jesus emptied himself of many of these things and operated within the limitations of being a man. To what extent he did that, we don't really know. Isn't that frustrating when those who are supposed to know don't know? Well, better men than me don't know either, amen? We just don't know exactly. And uh, But we do know that in Luke chapter 2, verse 52, Jesus was uh, increasing in wisdom and knowledge. And so he learned things as a teenager. That was uh, him as a teenager in Luke chapter 2. Uh, there's a sense in which Jesus was not accessing his full attributes of divine omniscience at that point. At the same time, in John 13, 3, this is the night before his crucifixion. At the very end of his life, the Bible says that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he was from God and went to God. So there had to be some kind of progression throughout Jesus' life. I don't know exactly what that looked like. I, don't, I know that Jesus had divine knowledge of many things, but there had to be some kind of progression uh, throughout his life. We don't understand completely how this works, but he was born under the law, Galatians 4.4. 4. So we gather that as a man, Jesus operated within some limitations. And he would have had the faith, uh, had to have faith in the work and the plan of the Father. Jesus acted on that trust in the Father, and he went about, as he went about daily doing his Father's business. There's something else we do know, and that is in Hebrews 11.6, the Bible says, but without faith, it is impossible to please God. If it was impossible to please God without faith, then would Jesus have it? Yes, he would, because he pleased the Father. In fact, at his baptism, the Father descended in the form of a white dove and said, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. And so to please him, he had faith. Case closed then. Jesus Christ had faith. He told the disciples in Luke 17, 6, if you had faith, as a grain of a mustard seed. You might say to this sycamine tree, be thou plucked up by the root and be thou planted in the sea and it should obey you. He tells us in that verse the crucial issue. Don't miss this now. This is good stuff from the Bible. The crucial issue is not the quantity of our faith. It said the grain of a mustard seed. I don't know if you've planted mustard lately, but they're small seeds, okay? Uh, and so when you read that verse, uh, then you see that it is the power of God, not the quantity of faith that is important. Referring to this tiny mustard seed, he draws attention or deflects attention away from the quality of faith to the object of faith. Hey, we all put our faith in things, don't we? Every day you put your faith in things, that chair. All right, you put your faith in your car that when you turn your key in the morning, it's going to start. You don't even think twice about it. You just turn the key and it starts if it's, if it's not a Ford. Uh, you put your faith in the Vikings and even more shaky things than that sometimes. We put our faith. I, I encourage you, friend, then, rather than worry about whether you have enough faith, make sure your faith is in the right thing. If you have faith as a mustard seed in him, that's going to make all the difference. Now, the second aspect of Jesus' faith is what I 
want to talk about today, and this hits us a little closer. In 1975, a young man struggling with what he would do with his life returned home from college. One day, he was hanging out at his mother's beauty salon uh, when a respected elderly woman came in. And when she came in, she lasered her focus on him and would not take her eyes off of him. Every time he looked in the mirror from the corner of his eyes, she, he saw her behind him just uh, boring into him and looking, watching him. And finally she said this, You know, young man, you're going to travel the world and speak to millions of people. Then she wrote those words on a small blue envelope and handed it to this young man. Her words spoke to a troubled heart. And he graciously accepted that envelope and he signed it. Then he put it in his wallet so he could carry it with him. Today, Denzel Washington is one of the biggest movie stars alive. In, the article, in, in an article in February of 2017, uh, Denzel said that this woman's words encouraged him when he was struggling. And today, some 47 years later, he still carries that little blue envelope with him wherever he goes. Ralph Waldo Emerson said, Our chief want is someone who will inspire us to be what we can be. We need someone to believe in us, don't we? In fact, uh, we, every one of us needs that desperately. Jesus had faith in his followers. He believed in them. People tend to rise to the occasion when they have someone who will believe in them. It's incredible what a few words of encouragement can do for a person. It's remarkable how far a person can go if someone uh, believes in them. In the book, Balcony People, Joy Heatherly describes two types of people, balcony people and basement people. Basement people, she goes on to explain, are, uh, they are those type of people with a critical spirit. They tear away at people's souls. They are always about uh, being rude and mean and critical to others and uh, crushing lives wherever they go. They always tear down instead of building up. But then she talks about balcony people. They are different. They encourage others. They cheer others on. And they create courage and confidence in other people. They're genuinely interested in other people's lives. They focus on their strengths and not on their weaknesses. I think of Barnabas in the New Testament. Remember Barnabas? Loved that guy. He was always encouraging others. In fact, they called him the son of encouragement. He was the, kind, he was the guy that came to Paul when Paul was uh, newly saved and nobody wanted Paul uh, at that time, Saul, in the service. It'd be like, you know, Osama bin Laden. Had, oh, I'm a Christian. Can I come to your church? Uh, no, thanks. You know, we wouldn't have to do Saul was the terrorist of that day. He was terrorizing the church. When he got saved, nobody wanted anything to do with him. It was Barnabas who came and brought Saul and said, Hey, listen, he, this is for real. God did a work in his heart. You need to accept him. It was Barnabas later that would take uh, John Mark after Paul lost patience with him and, and he would be patient with John Mark and investing in him and helping and, and pouring his life into him. And later, even Paul had to admit, John Mark is a help to me. Barnabas, uh, balcony-type people. Uh, I, no one, though, did it better than Jesus Christ. He inspired a group of 11 misfits to shake the world, literally. He tried to do it with 12, but of course not everyone responds the way that they should. But Jesus had immense patience with those 
uh, with the ones around him that uh, had weaknesses. He transformed uh, caterpillars into butterflies, if you will. He had patience and took time with them. Have you ever heard the phrase, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me? Remember that as a kid when you said that in defense when somebody was beating you up or throwing rocks at you, okay? Uh, the, the, those That say something that maybe my mom wouldn't like, but that's stupid. That's a stupid phrase. That's a dumb phrase. The truth is this. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can destroy me. Words can have a much bigger impact on people than any sticks and stones you can bring forth. Way more. Mark Twain said, I can live for two months on a good compliment. I, I know exactly what he's talking about. I can too. Uh, you give me a good compliment, I can, I can get some gas mileage out of that thing. We love that. We all need it. But you have to marvel at the people that Jesus chose to have faith in. Peter. Matthew 16, 18. He comes to Peter and he says, And I say also unto thee, Thou art Peter. And upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus looked at Simon uh, and told him that from now on his name would be Peter. The name Simon means to hear, to be heard, reputation. And doesn't that fit Peter, or Simon Peter who became Peter? Doesn't that fit him? Uh, he, this is appropriate. He was always being heard. He had the reputation of foot and mouth disease like many of us sometimes have. We've all experienced that when a thought pops in our head and jumps feet first out of our mouth. Sometimes that happens. What we need to do is we need to constantly pray, Lord, keep your arm around my shoulder and your hand over my mouth. I think it would help a lot of us with our Christian life. But Jesus changed his name uh, to reflect the change in his life. He says, thou art Peter, not Simon anymore. Thou art Peter, original word, Petros. And upon this rock, Petra, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Those two Greek words are distinctly different. Petros is a word that means a loose stone or a pebble. You walk outside right through our doors, you'll see some of that landscaping rock there. That's what we're talking about. That's a Petros. That's just a little pebble. Uh, Petra refers to a rock or a cliff that is firm. It is unmovable. Petra in this verse refers to Christ. Can I tell you today, friend, the church was not built on Peter. It was built on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's important that we remember that. The view that Peter is the rock that this church is built on is a wicked man-made philosophy, and it does not come from your Bible. He was simply a stone, one of many to be built up on that rock. And what was to be built on that rock? A new thing than ever before revealed. Jesus called it my church. He called it ecclesia. The word ecclesia is a familiar one to both Jews and Greeks at that time. Uh, the Jews used it to describe themselves as a chosen, called out people. And the Greeks used it to uh, describe, a, or it was an assembly of free men where slaves would not be allowed to be there. And so the Lord used ecclesia, the church, to denote his chosen people in this world. His own people who would be called out and those that be accepted, uh, that have accepted him as their savior, those who would embrace his authority in their lives. Ecclesia, my church. His followers would neither be Jews nor Greeks. They wouldn't be Jew or Gentile. Uh, later, they would be called Christians. What are, we're talking here about you and me, his church. But let's get back to Peter. Uh, he said, now you're going to be called Peter. Uh, he's talking to Simon. 
And no longer uh, would it be about Simon being heard. No longer would it be about Simon's reputation. He was a stone that Jesus would use to kickstart his church. But here's what I want to point out to you. Jesus saw something in Peter. No one else could. Peter wasn't the kind of guy... His track record was not a good one. He had a rap sheet, you could say, that was not positive. He was impetuous. He was reckless. He was impulsive. He was a hothead, led by his emotions often. When Jesus was at the end of his life, the very last night, <coughs> after Peter had been with him for three years, and he's in the garden, it's at the lowest point of his life. It is just before he sweat drops of blood, and he was uh, asking, Lord, if, if this cup can pass, nevertheless, let thy will be done. It was this time that he needed his friends around him the most and he took his three most intimate friends into that garden with him and he said, please, can you stay up? Can you pray with me? Peter went to sleep. <laughs> it was Peter. He just went to sleep. It's hard to blame him. Uh, you know, we do that too, don't we, sometimes. We fall asleep on the job. After three years of learning about love and forgiveness and how we show kindness to people, and he heard the preaching about love your enemies, and he heard about those that when they do evil on you, then you repay it with good. Peter chops a soldier's ear off. That's Peter. He's impetuous. He's reckless. Uh, at the heat of the moment, when after Peter said, I will never deny you. I will die before I deny you. He denies Jesus three times, once to a, just a girl. Can't stand up for him. Certainly that's not the behavior of someone you'd want to head up your organization. Yet despite all that, Jesus chose to have faith in him. Yet somehow Jesus saw in him the strength and the gifts to use what he had for the Lord. He knew that in him Peter could and would do great things. Thank God for the faith of Jesus. When everybody else may give up on me, he is there investing His love and His grace. When the world looks at you, friend, and they see a failure, Jesus sees a potential champion. Hey, there is nothing about a caterpillar that would lead an engineer to look at that and say, hey, looks like that thing can fly. <laughs> Not at all. But there's a change and a transformation that takes place, and there's possibility in that little worm, the potential to become a butterfly. And God sees potential and possibility in you, my friend. He has given you gifts and abilities because He has faith in you that you will use them to His glory. He wants you to live a full life. He wants you to be full of the fruits of the Spirit that we've been talking about. And He has faith in you, even when others don't. Isn't that a blessing? Thank God for the faith of Jesus. Peter went on to preach the good news of the gospel to thousands of people. On the day of Pentecost, 3,000 souls walked the aisle, got saved, and joined the church. Uh, they, he later took the gospel to the unclean people of the day, the Gentiles. His ministry was enormously controversial if you know the culture that he operated in. You read through the book of Acts, and he was even called to a, uh, basically a Bible conference to set him straight and to stop going to the Gentiles. But Peter... Uh, did what God told him to do, not what man told him to do. In the end, it got him the same result that Jesus received. He was also nailed to a cross, but he willingly allowed it, only asking to be crucified upside down because he wasn't worthy to be crucified like his Savior. He was known as Simon, the herd one, the one who everybody hears, reputation. Jesus saw him as a rock, and he invested in him. I'm glad we have serve a Savior today who does not only see what we are, but what we can be. Isn't that a blessing? 
Uh, I'm glad we serve a God of second chances, amen, and third chances and fourth chances and so on. Another disciple I'd like to look at is Thomas. We read about him in our text. There are two examples given in the Bible that reveal the heart of Thomas. <clears throat> I want to call him Thomas. I personally don't like the term doubting Thomas. I just That's a personal thing because how would you like to go down in the eons of history for one day that you messed up to be called a negative name for the rest of time? Doubting Thomas. Thomas was not... Uh, there's not that much negative. In, in fact, fact, there's much more negative about Peter than there is about Thomas in the Bible. Do we call him mess up Peter? Or uh, You know, we don't. We don't attribute that to him. But Thomas, uh, we see some things about his character. John 11, 16 is one of them. Jesus is about to go raise Lazarus from the dead. And it's too dangerous area. They know that Jesus' enemies are after him. And if Jesus goes there, he might just die. Uh, and so Thomas is willing to go with Jesus and to die with him if necessary. And then Thomas challenged everybody else that was there. Uh, Thomas said unto his fellow disciples, let us all go with him, that we also may die with him. That doesn't sound like a coward. Uh, he, there's no hesitation there. There's no cowardice. There's no doubt there in that statement. In John 14, 5, Jesus was telling his disciples that he's going to go away. And uh, that very sweet passage, uh, where I, when I, if I go, I will come again. I'll go to prepare a place for you. And he's telling them about all this. And he, then he tells his disciples that they know where he is going and they know how to get there themselves. <laughs> you ever been in a class situation, if you can think far enough back to school, uh, where we're in school and uh, the teacher says something and makes no sense? Uh, you know that you don't understand it, but you don't want to be the one to raise your hand because you'll appear the fool. Uh, and so here Jesus says this, and my opinion is that probably all the disciples are listening saying what i don't know what is the way he's talking there's only one of them thomas yes you in the back that, look, he says to jesus lord we know not whither thou goest but how can we know the way i like that yeah, we don't know where to go lord you're saying we know we don't know but we want to know the way lord show us the way these two passages show us a man who is not fearful uh, he is not afraid to uh, ask questions and his questions were not don't seem to be motivated by doubt but a desire to know more there's some good things we see about thomas thomas seems to me to be extraordinarily brave his he's loyal to jesus even to death he'd rather die with him than to live without him and then Jesus died on the cross. Thomas' world was shattered. Surely he thought the worst. No doubt he became despondent, depressed. No doubt he was discouraged, brokenhearted, felt that their dream had reached an end. A flood of competing emotions battled for control of Thomas's heart. And he was suffering somewhere else that first Sunday when he was not there when Jesus appeared. The other disciples tell him about it. Hey, you'll never guess what happened when you skipped church. You'll never guess what happened. Jesus was here. We saw him. And uh, the little verb said in our text there is in the active voice. That means they kept telling him about Jesus. And Thomas, no, no, no. No, really, it's true, Thomas. We saw him. He was here. And Thomas cannot bring himself to believe. He says those words, I will not believe. In fact, in the original language, that is a double negative where he's saying, I positively will not believe. He's adamant about it. 
I ask you, what's the problem with Thomas here? Well, he missed church. That's the problem. He skipped church one night. And he missed a lot because he wasn't there. In verse 19, he missed the presence of the Lord, the power of the Lord, and the peace of the Lord. In verse 20, he missed the praises of the Lord. Verse 21, he missed the promotions of the Lord. Verse 22, he missed the provisions of the Lord. Hey, when you neglect church, there's no telling what you'll miss. And uh, I encourage you not to. But before we're too hard on Thomas, well, can we remember together that the other disciples also did not believe when they first heard Jesus was risen. You remember that? That's found in Luke chapter 24, verse 11. When the women came and told them, they said, you guys are crazy. That's always a dangerous thing to tell a woman, but that's what they told her. Uh, you're, you're crazy. You've lost your mind. There's no way. So they doubted too the first time they heard it. The only reason the ten believed this time was because they had seen Jesus for themselves. Thomas was only asking for himself what they already had. They had seen Jesus. Here was Thomas's problem. He had hoped against hope that Jesus was the Messiah, the Savior. Now his last memory of Jesus is of a dead man hanging on a cross. His world has fallen down around him. He cannot bring himself to believe anymore, so he rejects the words of his friends and he spends a week in loneliness and discouragement. There are people in this room right now who can identify with Thomas. You have a hard time believing what you cannot see with your eyes. And to add to that, maybe there's heartache or sinful bondage in your life or depression or ruined expectations. For that reason, you are disillusioned and you've put off trusting in Jesus. And maybe you've trusted in Him for salvation, but you won't trust in Him for your life because of some of the things that have happened to you. Hey, His claims are amazing. What the Bible says about him is hard for the human mind to grasp. Still, let me encourage you today, delay no longer. Look to him. If you're not saved, if you never accepted Christ as your Savior, don't delay any longer. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but through me. Acts 4, 12, neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. Do not be disillusioned because you think the claims of Jesus are too good to be true. It's the fact that they're true that makes them so good. Amen. Jesus can do for you what He has done for others. He can forgive your sins, save your soul. He can free you from the bondage of your sins. He can do it for you and He will do it for you. So have faith. Believe it. Claim it. That's what we need to do today. Maybe the disciples pleaded with Thomas. To the point that he finally says, fine, I'll come. I'll come again. The next time they gathered, he was there. Again, Jesus appears in their midst. This time, I love this scene. Uh, he, when Jesus showed up and uh, talked to Thomas, he stood, at, look at verse 26, and stood in the midst and said, peace be unto you. Who, pray tell, do you think he was looking at when he said those words? He was looking directly at Thomas looking right at him. Peace be unto you. And then he says to Thomas, Thomas, there they are. Reach your fingers in. And uh, it's, a, it's an amazing thing uh, that uh, he did this for Thomas. Uh, he repeats the words of Thomas back to him, invites him to touch him. Then Jesus lets him, tells him to let go of your doubts and trust what you know to be true. Can I distinguish something for you today? There is a difference between doubt and unbelief. Big difference between the two. Uh, doubt is a problem of the intellect. 
where the person wants to believe but has some questions. Unbelief is a problem of the heart where a person will not believe no matter what he sees. Now, let me stop here and reiterate something that I've said before uh, to, to doubters and, and uh, those that would call themselves agnostics or atheists or doubters or who don't think the Bible has any truth in it. A few years ago, I had an atheist uh, self-evaluate. By the way, love to have conversations with them. And uh, always interesting to uh, ask them some questions and find out where their minds are at. I, ask, uh, I always ask the same question to an atheist. When did you become an atheist? They all have an answer. You see, you become an atheist. You're not born one. You become one. Whether it be trouble, whether it be bitterness, whether it be anger, something drives that inborn knowledge of God from you. And it's always have an answer for that. It's an interesting thing. But a few years ago, one of them told me, if God would just show himself, if God would just show me himself, then I would believe. And uh, this is something I have heard uh, actually from numerous people. And uh, this specific person I was talking to, I answered him, well, you know, lots of people claim to be God today. Did you know that? Right now, latest, last time I checked, there's 32 people right now in the world that claim to be God. There are a lot of them say that they're God. How would you know if he's telling the truth? Well, my atheist uh, friend that I was talking to answered, well, he would have to do something to prove to me that he is God. He'd have to do something that men could not do to prove that he's God. Well, I said, what if then, if he would like, I don't know, go to a wedding and turn water into grape juice? I mean, would that be sufficient? I know, what if he put his fingers on the eyes of a blind man and that blind man could see for the rest of his life? What if he actually went to a funeral procession? Uh, in the, he did, uh, Jesus did this in Nain. Goes to a funeral procession. He's walking beside the casket as he goes. Oh, and then he touches the casket. And the kid pops up that was in the casket. What if he did that? Raised somebody from the dead. You see, and as I told him, God did come in the form of Jesus Christ. He did prove who he was by miracles. And we killed him for it. Because unbelief is not connected to proof. Unbelief is a heart problem. It's not a prove-it problem. And but by the way, what if he was killed, which we did kill him? What if he was killed and three days later rose from the dead and was seen by over 500 people? Did you believe him then? He did. People still don't believe. Why? Because unbelief is a problem here, not here. And so Thomas was not, didn't have a problem with unbelief. Uh, he had a problem with doubt. And uh, when his questions were answered, I find it interesting. Did you know, he said, unless I touch the nails in his hands. Do you see anywhere in this passage where he actually did? No, he never did. An instant he had his questions answered, he says, my Lord and my God. He makes that uh, wonderful claim, uh, one of the greatest confessions in the Bible. Not only does he call him Lord and God, which he is, he says, my Lord and God. That makes it personal. All his doubts are now settled. Thomas gets all the other, uh, what the, all the other disciples got a week ago, apparently, Thomas never doubted again. After Pentecost, the Bible never mentions him again. History, however, tells us what happened to Thomas. Thomas traveled east, preaching the gospel through Persia. He finally ended up in India, where he had a very fruitful ministry. I read recently that there are churches today in India that can trace their history back to Thomas. Eventually, Thomas was killed with a spear, he died for the Lord that he had once doubted. But here's my question. 
One has to wonder how much of Thomas's success and commitment came from the fact Jesus had faith in him. Because when Jesus walked into that room, if he would have reacted like many of us might react with somebody like Thomas, he'd have said, what's he doing here? You made, I told you I would rise. They told you I had risen. You not only made me a liar, you made all of them a liar. Get out. I don't have any room for doubters and unbelieving people around me. Could have done that. He didn't, though. Why not? Because he had love, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, meekness, temperance, and he had faith. He had faith in his people. What a difference when he gently said, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. How quick are we to mow down people when they make a mistake? Instead of just believing in them. Instead of supporting them. Instead of gently helping them to the next step. He, he, I love what he did with Thomas. What Jesus is basically saying, Thomas, you're right here right now. I want to get you over here. You can change. And by the way, Thomas did that when he got some gentle help and support. Thank God for a Savior who loves and forgives and has patience with us. Thank God for a Savior who has faith in us. Because today, he still works with Thomases. Don't let your doubts and your pride and your fear and your sin, don't let anything hinder you from coming to Jesus Christ. Because if you'll come to Jesus Christ, he can fill your life with love, joy, peace. Long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, meekness, temperance, and faith. He can take you just like you are, and he can transform you like he did Peter and Thomas. Not only does Jesus use the unexpected to make leaders out of them, this is also the pattern of Jesus in salvation. Uh, Jesus was not the Messiah that the world expected. He reached out to the marginalized, the racial outsiders, the lepers, the tax collectors, the sinners. Jesus himself was a political outsider. He takes the people that the world sees at the bottom and he lifts them up. He takes the people that the world sees as outside and he brings them in. That's what Jesus does. That's who he is. Dear friend, I don't know if you're here today and if you've never accepted uh, Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, he seeks you. He wants you. Uh, you say, you don't know what I've done. I don't, but I know what he's done. He died on the cross for your sins. And there is no sin he cannot forgive. And if you, dear Christian, have struggled because of a lack of faith in your life, or maybe you have doubts that are haunting you every day of your Christian life, would you come to Christ today and let him settle that? He will, because he has faith. He has faith in you. Would you bow your heads, close your eyes? The pianos come forward. I don't know how God has spoken to your heart today, but I hope that He has, and I hope this is a challenge to better serve Him if we're Christians, uh, to serve Him with a, an all-out commitment and a lack of doubt. Maybe in here today and you've never accepted Christ as your personal Savior. Why don't you come and settle that today? Don't live another day without knowing your eternal destination.